Get ready to step into scripture with Matt and Tina. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to season four. We're in episode two of the Step Into Scripture podcast. We are working our way through the Bible chronologically in 2024. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm the author of Step Into Scripture, and this is my husband, Matt. I'm Matt Wilson, lead pastor at Ecclesia Christian Church in Conway, South Carolina, and author of The 40-Day Discipleship Journey. So we hope that you have started your Bible reading plan this week. And if you have, then in week one, that stays one through seven, you're going to read Genesis one through 11. And then we're going to jump over to Job one through 16 in this first week. So we will save Job for next week. This week, we are going to talk about a key event that we come to in our first week of Bible reading in this chronological plan in the book of Genesis, and that is the Tower of Babel. So if you have your Step Into Scripture book, if not, we recommend you get it. It's available on Amazon. But if you're following along there, you've seen shadows of the Messiah in the consequences of the fall that we see in Genesis 3.15, in the cleansing of the earth through the flood, and in the command to expand out from Babel, and in Job's desiring a mediator who could bring him into the presence of God. So a goal of this study is that we would start to find the centrality of Christ Christ in every on this episode we're going to look at another gospel shadow that's not included in the step into scripture book but it's one Matt that you introduced me to in one of your sermons here at Ecclesia and to get to this shadow I'm just going to start us off by reading Genesis 11 1 through 9 and then Matt if you'll unpack some of that so go with me to Genesis 11 now the whole earth had one language and a common speech as people moved eastward they found a plain in Shinar and settled there they said to each other come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confused their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I'm so excited about this passage, not only because it's a fulfillment for the New Testament, which we're gonna see in the book of Acts, but I'm excited because the historical context of what's happening here. So for a long time, people said this is a fable, it didn't happen. So let's just look at the pieces of this from the scripture. So where does the ark come to rest after the flood? Mountains of Ararat. Mountains of Ararat, right? And so the ancient people wouldn't have called that Ararat. They would pronounce it Urat, right? So we have found the oldest structure in Uratu. And guess what it's made out of? Because they said you could not build out of baked brick back then. They didn't have the technology. Guess what they built Uratu out of? Baked brick. Baked bricks. All right, so not only did they use the technology that the Bible states when secular historians said that it didn't exist, we're finding it does, but they're also finding that they were able to build massive structures, not straight up in a tower form as we picture, but this actually translates into ziggurat, which is a pyramid. And I love that people are scattered all over the earth. And what have we found on every continent? We find them everywhere pyramids. And we still can't figure out how they were built. Yet there was an ancient society at one point that all knew how to build them, right? So we look at this and they say, a lot of people say, well, they built a tower that reached into heaven. 
never says that. Let us reach towards the heavens, to the heavens. And the whole component here is some people say that they were trying to build big enough to survive a flood if a flood ever happened again. But this is the same thing we do today when we build skyscrapers all over the world. We're still competing to see who has the biggest. Yeah. Just look at Dubai. So they're trying to build this tower or else they'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So let's just look, what is the sin here? We know that God's going to punish them for this, but what's the sin? Well, they're breaking God's command to spread out and fill the whole earth. He gave that in Genesis 1:28. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then he repeated it. When they came off the ark, Genesis 9-1, God blessed Noah and his sons saying, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. So obvious breaking of that command instead of expanding and taking dominion over the earth that God has given them, they're going to huddle up in one place. And, you know, there's a beautiful fulfillment for this in Matthew 28. This is the same command Jesus gives us. Go, make disciples of all yeah. ethnos, all nations, going throughout the world. And this is, God's command never changed. It's been the same piece. So they were in defiance to God's decree. So they said, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. If we don't scatter, we find ourselves in a, a caste system eventually. Those who are greater, those who are lesser, and slavery comes about, forced labor, and kings and empires start to dominate the weaker, right? And so this has never been a part of God's plan. And then it says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. There is so much importance in this phrase. God's not a God of division, and God is not trying to stop harmony, but God is a God of, he wants obedience to his command. He wants his image spread throughout the earth. So at this time, what God has desired for his people to be united, to be in unity, to work together, to have one common language, all of this is being used against God. This is the devil's pattern all the way back from the garden. And so he's using God's pattern against him for the people to define. And he says, come. So the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. They stopped building the city. And that's why the city is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. So as we look at this, we know God's command has been defied, but they're acting in pride. So not only are they breaking God's command to fill the whole earth, but they're also acting in pride looking to make a name for themselves. God wants his name to be glorified, and instead they are seeking to glorify their own name. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.29 that no one may boast before the Lord. Instead, we're supposed to be not only bearing his image, like he created us in the garden, but also reflecting his glory, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18. So you've got rebellion and pride, not following the commands of God, trying to make a name for yourself instead of bring glory to the name of God. And the consequence for that is the confusion of languages. Like you just read, if it's one people speaking one language, they've begun to do this, love that, nothing will be impossible for them. Okay, so you can see how the devil flipped God's plan against him, just like in the garden, to use against the people, right? Yeah. Now, here's an amazing thing. God does the same thing to the devil. So the, even after God, way throughout the Bible, builds a kingdom, builds his people up, unites them, gives them his word. So they refuse to do God's 
commission. They, they, they become just this nation of themselves. They've got a great king, David, and then Solomon's wealthy. But they get so prideful in their kingdom, they do not carry out God's commission. So God raises up a prideful, rebellious empire yeah. in Babylon. Yeah. He subjects them in slavery. But Babylon starts doing something. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And you can read Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to break the whole dream down, but it comes up to four empires that God starts talking about. Four prideful, rebellious, vain empires. And the first one is Babylon. And Babylon's going to bring the world back together from this scattering that's happened and start uniting them under a king of kings and lord of lords, right? And then after him is going to come the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is going to start sending people back out under this kingship throughout the known world. They're going to have trade that's bringing people back and forth, trading systems, and start a root system, an a, a infrastructure of travel. And after them is going to expand the empire through Alexander the Great with the Greece. And now they're going to be united in language. So they're going to start speaking Greek. And the Greek language is going to be a common language for the people. He's going to expand not only empire, but their trade and their shipping routes through sailing, through transportation and carts. And then the Roman Empire will raise up to connect the entire world. They'll again unite them through a common language. They'll have the best infrastructure, the best Roman streets. They'll have shipping lanes, but they'll have trade communities. And in this, they'll also have a mailing system. Now, all of this is going to be so important because God's will is that people are scattered throughout the earth, now connected and connected through a common language. And this is the perfect time for the Messiah to come, according to Daniel chapter 2, that he's going to establish his kingdom then. And when we go to Acts chapter 2, after Jesus is resurrected, after Jesus has gone into heaven and after he's given this great commission, again, to go throughout the entire earth, but this time with an infrastructure, with streets, with shipping lanes, with, with hub cities and with a mailing system and a common language, again, united, there's nothing they can't do. And so we see Acts chapter 2 take place. So Acts chapter 2 then becomes a turnaround to Genesis chapter 11, where people acted in pride, they acted in rebellion, and so God confused their language and scattered them. We watched through the Old Testament this secession of empires that you described where all the systems are being put in place for God to flip this thing By around. prideful and rebellious leaders. That's right. Until God could send a humble, submissive King of Kings and Lord of Lords that is Jesus Christ to unite the world through him. So he comes, he pays the purchase price for the church, and then we find it birth in Acts chapter 2 and just listen to the turnaround from what we read this week about Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Starting in verse one, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, 
Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So the same bewilderment that we imagine the people experiencing on that day at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when all of a sudden we can no longer communicate, turn that bewilderment around and people are saying, we shouldn't be able to communicate. And I understand every word you're saying. What's amazing is at this point, they all were speaking a common language, a government language, if you will. But God makes it so intimate. There's been a lot of confusion about what tongues are here because people love to emphasize our own tongues. But they clarify in verse 8, our native. Now, the word here for language is dialectos. And this is so significant because it's not just native language of where we're from, but it's also where we get the word dialect. So this is very personal. So God is calling them in this scattered language so that people there obedient through this common language can now carry the gospel out. And so I think this is probably one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, and it gets missed because we're so focused on the supernatural gift that we're missing the supernatural fulfillment and what this gift was for, that God is reversing the rebellion of Genesis 11 and bringing under the submissive heart of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of Jesus Christ here in Acts chapter two. So he is reversing this punishment and bringing them together because the truth of it is, it's just as he said before, there is nothing impossible for them if they speak the same language. And so I love that not only do they have this this government language that ties people together, not only does the early church have the ability to speak in in the native languages of the people they're speaking to, but they're given a kingdom language, the gospel, a kingdom language that ties them under the true king who is Jesus Christ. So when languages were used for the purpose of rebelling against God and acting in pride in Genesis chapter 11, God confused the languages. But now in Acts chapter two, when the gospel is being spoken and the doors to the church the universal church are being opened so that people could be added to this number after they're baptized and receiving forgiveness of their sins and filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then God miraculously clarifies the language in this reversal. And if you look, there's a tit for tat. Notice God does something, Satan perverts it, right? And so God takes that and uses it. And then now today, as God has fulfilled this, even now the devil tries to for people that won't read scripture for themselves and and they have other people they're using. Remember the devil is a master of manipulating scripture. He still tries to pervert the kingdom language and the way that we can stay unified as they were in Acts chapter two is they devoted themselves to the kingdom language, the apostles teaching. If we're not reading the word of God, the devil can manipulate this kingdom language as well. And this is so significant because what we saw in Genesis 11 is when a people have a common language and a common purpose and they're acting in that kind of unity, nothing is impossible to them. And the impossible is about to happen starting here on the day of Pentecost because from 12 apostles and 120 believers, we're going to see 3,000 baptized and added to that number at this event. And from that small group of people, the entire 
population of the world is going to be changed so that more than 2,000 years later, you and I are still here talking about it. A movement was birthed that was unlike anything that that had ever happened before and anything that has ever happened since. Yeah, I would like to make one clarification. So the 12 apostles at this time were the 11 that had been with Jesus and then one who had been elected by the disciples, Matthias, who was there, but would later be fulfilled through the apostle Paul. Yes. And the important thing in this is the apostle Paul is going to be the guy that uses this gift in Ephesus and Corinth more than anybody else. But what's his role? Apostle to the Gentiles. Yes. And so every church we see set up from this place is going to be a church in an important trade route. So infrastructure has been built. God is utilizing this gift and he's utilizing this mission to get the word through all people. And I love that he brings this, this antagonist, this jihadist against the church yeah. is, a, is a central component, a core figure in being able to carry this out. Right. So you all hold on to that. Hold on to this reversal of what God did with languages from Genesis 11 to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to detour for just a minute. We want to go to Revelation 12. Now, the entire book of Revelation, like the whole Bible, is a chiastic structure. And we're going to talk more about this next week when we look at the book of Job. But in short, this is a Hebrew literary device. Um, it's described in the Step into Scripture book on day 15. And it shows up in these Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures where sections of themes from the first part of a book are repeated in the second part of a book in a reverse order. So it's also called reverse symmetry. And the procession of thought builds to a climactic center. And then that focal point is sandwiched between these opening and closing sets of statements that balance an inversion in reverse order in the second half. So I say all that to make the point that just like Jesus is the center of scripture, this section of our study is called shadows because we're seeing shadows of the Messiah in everything we read. Jesus is the focal point, the central point of all scripture, the climax of the chiasm of the entire Bible. Revelation as an isolated book, the 22 chapters called Revelation, that is a chiasm as well, built on a chiastic structure. And just like Christ is the focal point of the whole Bible, Christ is the focal point of the book of Revelation. So that the center point of Revelation is chapter 12. And that chapter is all about Jesus and the work that he did. So we're going to read it and then we want to talk about it and how it relates to this discussion about the confusion of languages in Genesis and the clarification of languages in Acts chapter 2. So read with us Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars from the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Hmm. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. 
the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and all his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So we're going to break this down, but let's identify the three main characters that we read about in Revelation 11. You have the woman who is the remnant of Israel. This is the woman, the remnant, who was preserved like you just described, Matt, through that secession of empires beginning with Babylon, these prideful empires, and and through Persian and Grecian and Roman domination who brought about the Messiah. So that is the remnant of Israel. And the church is the rest of her offspring. Those who Revelation say keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That is the Christians. So the woman is the remnant of Israel. Her offspring is Christ and the rest of her offspring is the church. Then you have the dragon who clearly is Satan. Uh, That's what verse nine says, very clear. And then the child of course is Jesus. That's what verse five says here. The writer of Revelation, John quotes from Psalm two, a prophecy about the Messiah pointing us toward Jesus. So What exactly is happening here between this woman, the remnant, her child, Jesus, the rest of her offspring, the church, the dragon, who is Satan? Well, you know what I have to say here. This is about Christmas. Yeah. So, like, if if you're like me, um, I can't. I can't really stand seeing a, a nativity that's got wise men and shepherds and camels and everything in it because it's out of order for me. But I also like to see a nativity with a dragon in it because this is this is very very important piece of us understanding Christmas is as God sent in his son, Satan has tried to, to destroy him. Uh, you look at Herod's decree to kill the male children, and you look at the kings of the earth, the, the wise men who provide a way for him to be saved through this. Um, but I also cannot help but find beauty where the child is snatched up to heaven. You know, we picture God sending his only son to die for us, and that can seem cold. Yeah. But we miss that God also cherishes and wants to protect his son. And so he took Jesus back. He didn't leave him here forever. He left the spirit, but he took his son back to heaven. And I think that's beautiful because death could not stop him. Death could not overcome him. He he resurrected. Now he's not a simple sacrifice or baby on this earth. He is the king of kings, the fulfillment of that. 
the Lord of Lords, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has all authority in heaven and on earth until, according to 1 Corinthians, when everything, the final enemy is defeated and he hands it back over to the Father. Um, I just think it's so beautiful because when you look at Matthew 28, in verse 18, it says, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what was the commission he gave us? To the offspring. Now, we can, we can look at the remnant, and I do believe there is still a remnant of Israel that's there, but I believe according to Galatians chapter 3, we are the fulfillment. We are the Israel that's today, and the church, the offspring, and he's telling the offspring, go, there's going to be war waged against you. Yeah. And there was a great war waged against the church. It's never stopped. Every religion in the world has seasons of peace. The church is the only one that is still attacked today. They attack Jesus. They attack Christianity. While they can be silent on other religious entities and organizations yeah. out there, the church is the one that constantly has a war waged against it. But I believe the peace and hope in this is, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. The word there is ethnos. So all ethnicities, all people groups, okay? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That means they're no longer of these ethnic groups. They're now of a spiritual right. group. They now belong to the Father. Because of the blood of the Lamb, this testimony is going out and making disciples. And it says, and teaching them to obey everything I, the one with all authority in heaven and earth, has commanded you. And then he gives this promise, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So he's triumphing over death. He is the one who's seated in power. Satan is the one that is cast down. What does this mean? Well, now we can go back to the book of Job. You find that Satan used to walk into the presence of God, right? I mean, I think a lot of people look at Satan being cast out in Genesis. They see Satan's no longer allowed to be in heaven. But if you look at the book of Job, Satan was able to, he was enabled to walk into the presence of God, accusing mankind. That's his label, the accuser. But now he's cast down. And instead, Jesus is in the presence of the Father. And instead of having an accuser that's standing there accusing mankind, we have what the Bible calls an advocate who's advocating on our behalf, but not just on our behalf of saying, oh, God, just you know they're weak humans and they're going to make mistakes. We have an advocate who walked in our shoes, yeah. who faced temptation, who faced trials, who faced the persecution, who can stand to God and say, now I know that's hard. Like I was your son. I am God in flesh and I was tempted. Yeah. They don't, they're not God in flesh. They're humans. So dad, I understand their struggle. I understand their weakness. This beautiful plan of God to send Jesus so that he could understand us. Yeah. So that Jesus could advocate on our behalf. And so we have this beautiful exchange that's happened, but with an exchange comes, where is Satan now? According to Revelation, he's been hurled to earth. Yeah. And he's pursuing the remnant and the church, the woman and the offspring. And he's waging war against us because why? He's mad. He knows he doesn't have much time. And the right. only way he can hurt God, Christ, he could not defeat. The right. only way he could hurt God, he couldn't destroy his only son. He couldn't tempt his only son away from him. Right. He tried. So what can he do? His other children. Right. He wages war because the only way he can hurt God is to try and tempt us away from God, to turn us, to confuse us, to cause us to act in rebellion because he only has a little bit of time and he knows it. So he's given it all he's got. So what does this have to do with languages being confused in Babel and clarified at Pentecost? I believe that the confusion in our communication is a tactic of the enemy. It's always been there. Everything of Satan is counterfeit 
because he's not the creator. He is a created being. Yeah. He can only uh, copy plays from God's own book. So that's why we see these, these flips, these twists of yes. what God's done, perverting them for his own evil purposes. And he knows God. He knows who God is. And he stood in the presence of God. He knows God's word. He knows God's word. That's why we have to read it because he is a master manipulator of the word. Right. He quoted it to Jesus. He was so arrogant with it. He thought he could use it against Jesus. Yes. And so that's why God says we have to be aligned. We have to speak the same language. And it's always been about the word of God. In the beginning, everything was created by the word. And in the end, everything is finished by the word of God. Every attack and battle takes place with words. That's why God said, as if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. He knows the truth. Do you see where I'm going here? Yeah. Yeah. When Christ built his church, what we saw on the day of Pentecost, he reconciled these languages that had been confused since Babel through a miraculous gift because with unity of purpose and unity of speech, he said, anything is possible. But Satan, we see in Revelation 12, is enraged and is actively warring against Christ's church. He's mad because he couldn't stop the Messiah. He couldn't stop the remnant of Israel who he tried again and again to destroy. And so now he is waging war against the rest of those offspring, all of us who hold fast to our testimony about Jesus. And so the one way that he knows that he can create chaos and confusion is by confusing our languages. And I think that our speech today becomes confused, not because we're not all multilingual, but because we stop speaking the language of the kingdom and we start speaking the language that we saw the people speak way back at Babel in Genesis 11, and it's the language of pride. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed. It's easy for us to identify when the secular world or the pagan world attacks the church, but the devil's greatest weapon today is the church against the church. Yeah. So as we bring this episode to a close, I want to just share a few insights from the book Revolutionary Disciple by Jim Pupman and Chad Harrington. There, they offer some really great advice about looking out for this language of pride, this Babel language that is contrary to kingdom language, how to watch out for that in your life. So they say on page 29 of The Revolutionary Disciple, we asked ourselves, what does pride look like for Christians today? When we started answering this question, we realized the list was long. Pride shows itself when we blast someone on social media with whom we disagree, scream and yell in anger at a sports game, reject the promptings of the Holy Spirit to give up a particular sin, float from church to church because we're too busy chasing our dreams, rebuff people who hold us accountable for our actions, play the victim rather than trying to understand or resolve the conflict, defend ourselves when someone gives us constructive criticism, Mm. leave a church and divide God's people wreaking havoc along the way, refuse to forgive others when we clearly need forgiveness from God and others too, judge others for their sins, but look past our own. So those are great markers that we can look for in our lives as indicators that we are not speaking the kingdom language of love. A great, a great resource for someone if they have two hours to just sit off somewhere, if they would get an audible version of A Tale of Three Kings. Yes. 
Um, it's such a, an eye-opening experience, but you got to listen to it because it's in a play format. Yeah. But it's amazing. It really helps cover this in a way that opens your eyes. It walks you through it. Great pride check in that book. Yeah. And then just a few more lines here from the Revolutionary Disciple, page 122, regarding pride in the church. The authors say, Today it's so easy for Christians to float from church to church, searching for the one that's doing it the right way. <laughs> but when we start pitting ourselves against the bride of Christ like this and elevating our own personal walk with Christ above our walk with his church, we're letting pride creep in. We disobey what the divine architect talks so much about, which is our love for each other, which requires commitment. commitment. How do we move forward? We need to identify any prideful thoughts that enter our mind about the church, such as, if these people would just get it together, we could really do something and be the church. Hmm. The leaders at this church just don't get it. These other people are in it just for their personal gain, but I'm here to serve. If the leaders don't figure it out soon, I'm going to find another church. I really don't get anything from church. In fact, I would be spiritually fine without it. I could do a better job leading the church than the leaders of this church. If they knew what was best, they would put me in control. Yeah, I think there's a, a demigod personality that we can take on after a while to where we try to force the church to be what we want it to be yeah. instead of being for the church what Christ wants us to be. And we forget that the, the Apostle Paul said, don't you know that you together yes. are the temple? where the Holy Spirit dwells. Like and what's so unfortunate, what's so tragic about that is when we let that language of pride creep in, we prevent the impossible from happening. Because Jesus told his followers, you're going to do greater things than I've done. The impossible is still possible when we're speaking a common language and united around a common purpose. Now, it's important to note that what we're saying here is we're not teaching people to stay in a toxic church. Sure. Um, but if the church is teaching the Word of God, if the church is 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 following the Great Commission, yeah. carrying that out, if the church is serving, if the church is producing the fruit that the Bible teaches us right. to produce, then it's not about the church being up to our standards or to our traditions or our preferences. It's how do we help the church become all that it can be? But if a church is not teaching the Word of God, if a church is not reaching the lost or helping those in need, then in that place, try to help the church get there sure. first. But if the church will not change, then it's probably best for you to find a church that you can be a part of that is is going to carry out the commissions of Christ. Well, and if it's a problem everywhere you go. Oh, definitely. Then <laughs> if if you step in a pile of dog poop and every room you go in smells like dog poop, check your shoes. Right. <laughs> so here's a great lesson we can learn in a New Testament context, a Christ-centered lens for this Old Testament passage about the Tower of Babel. For the expansion of the kingdom, which is what God commanded from the beginning, and for the health of his church, we need to unite around a common kingdom language of love that doesn't allow Satan to confound and confuse our speech so that rebellion and pride come in and hinder the mission of Christ. I think it's important for people to know God was never against building. God wasn't coming against them right. for building. They were building their own tower. 
just like today, we can, God's not against building the church. He's commanded us to build his kingdom. But if you're building your own, right, that's the rebellion we've got to be cautious over. Right. So some questions for you to consider from this week's reading, days one through seven. As you move into next week, we're going to talk about Job more. But this week, a question you can consider in light of this discussion about languages is, how did Job's friends who talked to him speak the wrong language? Wow. Using God as the... Yes. That, yeah, definitely. There are a lot of people that weaponize Scripture out of context yes. or, or throw God's name onto their opinions to be... Oh, wow. And That's we'll dig good. more into that next week. Another question is, what would have been a more loving approach, a more kingdom language approach toward their hurting friend in the book of Job. How can we learn to speak the language of love as we comfort others? And how can we all contribute to a unified language in Christ's church? Wow. So consider those questions this week, and we'll be back next week in week two of this reading plan to talk more about the book of Job. So we'll see you then.